Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. I am really grateful to be with you today for this, my attempt to present to you my Sunstone presentation called The Union, Shadow, and Mormon History. I'm also sort of morphing that to call it the uh, Joseph Smith's polygamy, or the shadow of Joseph Smith's polygamy and its ongoing reverberations. So anyhow, you know how you get going and it's like, oh, I just, you know, you think of better ways to say things. So you guys, I'm coming at you uh, a week after having gone to the Sunstone Symposium. It was a phenomenal experience. If you want to hear more about that, jump back to the episode right before this. And the episode right before that is where I present to you my first of two of the two presentations that I gave at Sunstone. And may I just begin by giving a huge plug for the Sunstone organization and for the opportunity that I had to not only present there, which was not only... Um, a joy, but absolutely terrifying a little bit. <laughs> but it was also an amazing, amazing experience that I just wish, I wish there were 10 times more people there. That would be my only wish, that it is that good of a, an opportunity to learn, to grow, to share, to be in connection with people trying to grow their souls. Okay, so today let's jump into this idea of the Union shadow and Mormon history. So this conversation that I want to have with you in the next hour is about human strength and weakness. This is about ourselves. So I really want this to be a self-reflection activity. This is about historical figures that go back as far as the Bible and into um, our modern days. And in these uh, situations that I'm going to share with you, these are about people who grappled with their own humanity and either prevailed by integrating the wholeness of themselves on um, both their light parts and their dark parts, or in contrast, it was about those who were overcome by denying both their light parts and their dark parts and how this denial has affected us today. I want to start by sharing a little story about uh, someone who I think I have a huge amount of respect for. He's an astronomer by the name of Andrew Lynn. This is a modern day astronomer and not very long ago he discovered a planet that had survived and was still orbiting around a pulsar, which is an exploded supernova. This explosion was so huge and violent that it outshone the galaxy next to it for several days, and somehow or other, this small planet survived. Okay, so Andrew Lynn and his colleagues discovered this, went through a great deal of effort in coming up with some sort of a theory, writing a paper, they published it, and they are of course getting a lot of hype about like, Wow, what did they come up with? How was this thing even possible? So they were getting ready to speak at a symposium or some sort of a convention here in the United States. And Andrew Lynn had a, an epiphany. <laughs> the epiphany was that he had not considered one single factor in the analysis. And this single factor absolutely um, destroyed his entire theory. Andrew Lynn had nothing to share at the symposium. So he had a choice to make. In this moment, he had to decide how he was going to move forward. If he was going to embrace the fact that he was in fact a brilliant, thorough, wise, precise, and exacting kind of scientist most of the time. But he also had a choice as to whether or not he could embrace the reality and share with others the reality that he also had a dual self that was the opposite of each and every one of those characteristics. 
Although he was generally bright and brilliant, he sometimes could be dull and sloppy. Although he was generally probably a thorough scientist, wise, precise, and exacting, he could also be sloppy, foolish, and disorganized. This man had to make a choice as to whether or not he had enough confidence in himself and knowledge in himself to own the fullness of both the, uh, the, the strengths that he had, but also that on the flip side of each of those strengths, there were weaknesses to be looked at and governed because um, he, he possessed all of these things. So he goes to the convention and he stands up and he says something to this effect. I think you, I know you're here, or you think you're here to hear about this paper that I've written about this discovery and the science behind it. Well, that is not what I'm here to talk about. What I'm here to say is that I made a huge mistake and the entire thing is wrong. People that were in the community that were at this convention said it was the greatest moment of integrity in all of astronomy. Now that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but the point is that the people in the room were overcome and overwhelmed with respect for this man, so much so that the room erupted in a standing ovation for the integrity of this man. So I wanna open this presentation by saying that Andrew Lynn, this astronomer, is a beautiful modern day example of someone who took ownership of his shadow self, meaning that he recognized that, that he had a dual part of himself. There was a duality of his being. He could be both all of the things that he was grateful for, that he was proud of, but in so doing, and, and he had the courage and confidence to recognize that he could also be the opposite of those things, and he was actually okay with it. He was recognizing that he had a shadow, and all of us, actually have a shadow. So let's go into this idea of the shadow. What exactly is the shadow? Each of us has one. So Carl Jung came up with the, uh, the philosophy of the way we talk about the, the, the shadow in humanity. And he says this, the shadow is simply the thing that I do not wish to be. So simply put, we all have one and there are parts of us that we do not wish we had, but yet we still have them. The shadow refers to the part of our unconsciousness that is the nearest to the consciousness, okay? So we have the conscious part of ourselves, these, uh, the persona or the masks that we wear, and um, these are okay, right? They are parts of us that we want the world to see. In the case of Andrew Lynn, he wanted the world to see him as smart and articulate and exacting and precise and thorough, and yet, the shadow part of us is the part that hovers just below our consciousness, which has an awareness that we're probably not always those things. So we kind of know that we have these parts of it, but the, the conscious part of us doesn't like to accept that that is actually true. I hope that makes sense. Let me try one more quick time to describe this. The shadow is the part of ourselves, our characteristics, that we know on some level is who we are, but we don't really like that, those parts of ourselves. So for example, I may feel like a part of me that I'm proud of is I may feel that I am very generous. And yet at the same time, I have to have an awareness that sometimes I'm not very generous at all and I am sometimes selfish. To the extent that I take ownership of the fact that sometimes I'm selfish, I will never probably be overly selfish because I have a pulse on the potential that I am sometimes selfish and actually, Sometimes that selfish part of me might actually be adaptive, meaning that it may actually contribute to my own capacity to self-care. 
So if I have a relationship with that part of myself that I, that I don't wish I had, and I'm able to sort of um, keep notice of it and be aware of it, it won't take over. It won't take control. It remains a part of me um, that I own, that I accept, and that I um, mediate appropriately. Let's talk a little bit more about the shadow. Like I said before, we all have shadow parts. They develop early in our life when we map what others around us find acceptable and unacceptable about us. Another interesting concept of the shadow is that the shadow content varies from person to person, and it is informed by our family of origin, by our community, by our friends, by our church, by our, the systems around us, like our school and the clubs we join, the world that we live in. So someone may have a, a shadow where they fear a lot, a feel, a lot of anxiety around the idea of money. And someone else in another time, place, and culture and family may have um, no shadow at all about that. They may have a really um, pretty integrated understanding of, of the idea of money in their life. So everybody's shadows are slightly different based on the way we map what is okay and acceptable um, to those around us in our societies. Another aspect of the shadow is we have a really hard time coming to know our own shadows because we oftentimes spend a lot of time pretending like we don't have them. We oftentimes deny our shadow because we feel shame about it. We feel bad that these parts of ourselves, that these, these negative parts of ourselves, or at least we see them as negative. We don't like this idea. We like to feel like we're good and whole and kind and respectful and self, selfless and all of these things while not recognizing that actually all of us probably have elements of ourselves, not probably, we definitely have elements of ourselves that are unknown and that we don't want to know. The deal is, though, that we come to know our shadows most generally in uncomfortable confrontations with others, meaning that to the extent that we don't want to know or choose to know or commit to knowing our shadows, we will in fact find out about what those shadow parts are when we are confronted with our behavior in the context of our relationships. So let me just give you a quick little example, um, kind of a funny one, but one that I was just sort of thinking about to illustrate uh, how this shadow looks in real life. So. We live, uh, my family lives in the Midwest and we live um, on a lake. And my very favorite thing in the whole world to do is I like to be out on the boat with my family. And I figure, I, this is where I, this is the part of myself that I feel like I'm proud of. I feel like I'm a pretty good wife. I feel like I'm pretty generous and understanding and patient. But over the years, I've come to recognize that there is a dark side of me that emerges when I'm behind the boat trying to get up on a slalom ski if my husband is at is at is in captain's position if he's at the will there is a part of me that is nothing like i want myself to be not kind not generous not patient <laughs> and i have a couple of choices to make in those moments i have to become very awake and aware of the of the, the fact that for whatever reason in this particular moment a dark side of me comes out and to the extent that i own that, okay, this is some of my shadow stuff. This is stuff that um, emerges, and if I am aware of it and take ownership of it and confront it, I can um, work on it. But if I don't take ownership of it and confront it, then I turn my husband into the bad guy, and I make all sorts of bad choices, both internally and in my relationships, that justify my bad behavior, and I will never be able to grow and learn from it, and I hurt people and myself. So that is a good example of how 
each of us um, can start noticing in these sort of simple moments of our lives where our shadows lurk. Where do we deny? It's not only okay, it's mandatory that we acknowledge the fullness of ourselves, our dark sides and our bright sides, so that we can actually have a healthy relationship with both. So let's just talk about what happens when we don't want to confront our shadows. These are some tactics that we use to run away from our shadow parts or to deny that there is any darkness in us. First of all, we become extremely committed to the desired me state. Now, if you were in the room with me at symposium, um, at the Sunstone Symposium, I would have, uh, I, you would have had the benefit, of course, of my slides and my face and all of my nonverbals. But the me state, I want you to imagine my putting hand quotes around me. This is who I want you to think I am. And then there is the contrasting side, the not me self state, which is this is my shadow part. So. When I am running away from my shadow, I become sort of hyper actively aware of um, you thinking about me as all of the things that I want you to think about me. I want you to think that I'm perfect, that I am, um, that I am above reproach, that I never make mistakes. So whatever my particular shadow content is, I'm very, very um, consumed with your seeing me that way. And I really do a lot to manage my image around my me state. Okay, something else that I do to run away from my shadow is when the not me state inevitably creeps up, as it always will, I engage in a lot of self and other deception. I explain to you or I tell myself um, all sorts of uh, creative things so that you so that I can basically um, not be in contact or not be accountable for my shadow behavior. I also practice a great deal of very creative self justification. Something else that I do as I'm running from my shadow is I treat you poorly. I experience a sense of grandiosity because remember, I am denying my humanity. So basically my thoughts are in some way, shape or form, I am better than you. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't possibly be a selfish person. I have no selfishness in me if that is my shadow material, in fact. And so I basically uh, treat you as one down and uh, experience myself as one up. So I. When I'm grandiose in a relationship, basically, um, I'm not accountable. I, I'm not sensitive to how I'm hurting you. Uh, my, my judgment is blunted. And I do things because I absolutely won't look at myself. So I make you the problem, which is the second tactic we use as we mistreat each other. After I'm grandiose, I will scapegoat you, meaning that if anything comes up, that puts me into contact of this um, loathed shadow that I don't want to look at in myself, I blame it on you. Or heaven forbid, if you do something that looks like my shadow stuff, I am ultra sensitive, hyper aware of it, and very hostile and judgmental of you because I don't want to even think about the possibility that anybody could be that way. But if I see it in you, it may on some sort of unconscious level remind me of myself. And I'm really hypersensitive to, uh, to, your, to, to you behaving in a way that reminds me of what I don't want to think about in myself. Okay, we're going to go into some illustrations of this. But before I do that, a shadow expert by the name of Sanford says, owning up to the shadow is not nearly as damaging in the long run as denying it. Denying our shadows gets us in so much trouble, not only in the, in the place of, it gets us in trouble in our own psychological and spiritual development, but it also really gets in us in trouble in um, the realm of uh, interpersonal development, which I think all of those things are very much linked to one another. So how do we integrate our shadow? How can we come 
to really consciously wake up to the fact that we each have shadow parts. Okay, I'm just going to run through just a short list of what we can do. We can heighten our awareness of a variety of things, but it's really all about heightening our awareness. Some things that I can become more, more aware of as I'm doing my own shadow work is I can become aware of how willfully unaware I have been. I can come to own what I have been out of contact with in myself, meaning that if I notice over and over again that I don't want to admit I'm ever wrong, I can really find my shadow material pretty closely surrounding what I'm not wanting to be wrong about. Another thing that I can heighten my awareness of is my own humanity. I can recognize that it's okay for me to have lightness and darkness within me, to have my strengths and my weaknesses. I mean, what else? The atonement is actually intended for us to come into contact with our shadow parts and embrace those weaknesses that we have and, and come into relationship with ourselves and with our Savior Jesus Christ through acknowledging our humanity, which is, in, in essence, our shadow parts. We can heighten our awareness around our own hubris. We can acknowledge over and over again how arrogant we are in thinking that we have it all figured out or that we're smarter or more righteous or better or more of anything than the other than the next person over. Something else we can heighten our awareness in as we're doing our own shadow work is we can really acknowledge our grandiosity, how sometimes we think we're better than other people. If we think we're better than other people, in any, um, in any realm of our lives, that is, uh, it's a pretty good guess that we have shadow material to confront. And also it's really important as we heighten our awareness and do our own shadow work to notice where are we self-deceiving and where are we justifying our bad behavior and where are we blaming other people on, um, for, for, for things that we see out there that we don't want to acknowledge in ourselves. All right, so let's just talk about, um, so the idea here if I were to sort of narrow down everything that I just talked about in terms of how to, to uh, do shadow work or how to integrate our shadows into ourselves, it, co it comes down to two ideas. First and foremost is heightening our self-awareness and the second concept um, closely related to this, uh, heightening our self-awareness is having the power of ongoing self-confrontation. Swig and Abrams, um, a couple of other experts in the field of shadow work, they say this, the aim of meeting the shadow is to develop an ongoing relationship with it, to expand our sense of self by balancing the one-sidedness of our conscious attitudes with our unconscious depths. Coming into true relationship with ourselves means that we have to plumb the depths of, um, of what we don't want to know about ourselves. We have to make our unconscious conscious and a lot of what is hidden down there in the unconscious is stuff we don't want to think about we don't want to know we don't want to confront we don't want to address but it is through confronting addressing and knowing these things that we come into a fullness of the depths of and the beauty of what it is to be human so addressing and acknowledging all of our shadow parts not only help us come closer to god and ourselves but it also helps us be in more ethical relationship with those around us and that's what we're really going to um, spend a lot of time on right now all right so let's just spend a minute talking about an example of where this went well where someone was able to confront his own shadow and offers for us a phenomenal example of what it looks like to self-confront and do their own shadow work the individual I want to talk to to you about is the prophet, not the prophet, I'm sorry, is King David of the Bible. 
King David of the Bible was um, the, the, the beloved child hero of David and Goliath. And I think he is just the one of the more fascinating characters in, um, in the Old Testament. And I would believe that his story of learning how to self-confront and um, do his own shadow integration probably began the night uh, that he wound up on his balcony of his castle. And he saw, of course, the beautiful Bathsheba out on her balcony bathing. And from this point on, until he stopped himself in his tracks, or he was stopped in his tracks rather, he began to use many of the tactics that I just spoke with you about when one begins to run from their shadow. It would appear, um, I would say that David, like many human beings, um, he, and especially David, because he had a role to play, he was a king and he had titles. And so he had probably high expectations of himself. And he probably had a, an idea of what he, who he wanted to be seen as, as a righteous king. And I, it's my belief that to the extent that there is a lot of pressure and status and um, fame um, placed upon us, it's probably harder for those of us who have all of this, I should say those of them, because <laughs> that's certainly not me, but anyone who is in a position of, of a lot of title, honor, power, and uh, roles that they play, they probably really do struggle a, a lot. They're very vulnerable to struggles with their shadow because they don't want to acknowledge those dark sides of themselves because they're so overcommitted to the roles that they've been given. So my guess with David is that he probably uh, showed, uh, he was very committed to managing his self-image. You'll remember in the story of David as he uh, sees this woman, it's my belief that he begins a downward spiral of denying his shadow. You'll remember that he requested that Bathsheba be brought to him. He exploited her sexually. It's certain that he went through some phase form of active denial um, of what he was doing. Somehow he must have uh, felt as if somehow he was entitled to what he got, that as a king, perhaps he could take what he wanted. There was some selfishness, grandiosity. I'm, I'm going very quickly through, through his sort of downward spiral. He must have justified his behavior somehow. He deceived himself and he certainly moved into the tactics of running from our shadows in, um, in the hostility that he, he sh showed and the self-deception and the justification by um, how he wrapped uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah into the whole situation, which eventually ended up in Uriah's death. So there was a spin that began when David truly lost track of his own deep internal wisdom and goodness, and he lost track of this dark side of himself. And it ended up in the exploitation, the sexual exploitation of a woman and in the death of her husband. This is an example of when someone loses touch with the dark sides of themselves, and the dark side, in fact, takes over. But then something happens. And the prophet Nathan enters in. And as you'll remember from the, from the Bible, the prophet Nathan shares a, a little bit of a, a, an allegory with King David, which basically articulates to David in a very sort of subtle but provocative way that David himself had taken something that was not his and he had exploited others and he was selfish. 
And David, of course, is hearing this story uh, because it's an allegory and he's disgusted by it. And he's absolutely um, upset by the story. And he tells Nathan, this is, this is a horrible story. How could this happen? And I can only imagine the moment where the, where the prophet David or the prophet Nathan looks into David I, David's eyes and said, David, you are the man. I'm talking about you, my friend. And in this moment, David had a choice. He could have, uh, as a king, he could have absolutely rejected Nathan. He could have struck him out of his, out of his home, out of his castle or, or palace or whatever they call it. But he didn't. David self-confronts. And he recognized that what Nathan was saying was true. Nathan was calling him out and saying, you have done something horrible. Look at yourself, David. And in that moment, David stopped in his tracks. And although he had done damage, he certainly had done damage. He had definitely, he, he killed a man, deeply wounded a woman. At least in this moment, he was able to look at himself and begin to allow the power of the atonement to heal him and help him absolutely begin to, to come into true contact with the wholeness of himself, both his goodness and his badness, both his honor and his manipulation and his, and his, his evil. And we know this for a fact because uh, later on in the Old Testament, if we go to the 51st Psalms, the, the 51st Psalm, uh, we have recorded a psalm written by David as he walks us through his process of healing from his own unresolved shadow, as he takes upon himself the required work of looking at himself and asking for forgiveness, of, of self-confronting, of recognizing, I have self-deceived, I have self-justified, I have exploited people, I have scapegoated people, I have been hostile, and I am sorry. These are just a few excerpts from the 51st Psalm, from the, the New International Version of the Bible. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. These words come from the mouth and the heart of a man who embraced his shadow and took ownership of what he had done and endeavored to spend the rest of his life trying to become more made over in the image of his God. Zwig and Abram say this, only those who know their capacity for lust, greed, rage, gluttony, and for all things excessive, who have understood and accepted their own potential for inappropriate extremes, only these can choose to regulate and humanize their actions. And this is a beautiful way of talking about exactly what David the prophet or the king did. Another quote by Samford is, um, is this, he says this, integration of the shadow is always concurrent with the disillusion of the false persona. One becomes much more realistic about oneself, seeing the truth about one's own nature always has salutary effects. 
salutary, <laughs> salutary effects. Honesty is the greatest defense against genuine evil. When we stop lying to ourselves about ourselves, that is the greatest protection we can have against evil. Let me repeat that last line. When we stop lying to ourselves about ourselves, that is the greatest protection we have against evil. I'm now going to turn to a an example that is not quite so, uh, it's not as uplifting as the story of King David. As a matter of fact, this is probably my, this is my least favorite part of the presentation, although maybe the most powerful and provocative part. I'm going to talk about a less effective example. Um, I'm going to talk about an experience of a very, very important figure in our own Latter-day Saint church history who was not able to confront his own shadow. I'm going to talk about the prophet Joseph Smith, and I'm going to relate his uh, shadow struggles around the same topic where I looked at David's shadow struggles, and that had to do with power, women, and polygamy, and specifically polyandry. I'm not here to persuade you. I know there are a lot of different feelings and thoughts that we may have about uh, this topic of Joseph Smith's polygamy, but I am just wanting to invite and evoke thought. So let's just talk a little bit about some similarities between the prophet Joseph Smith and King David. First and foremost, I believe um, that God loved both of these. These are both children of our divine parents. And so by definition, they are beloved, independent of their strengths and weaknesses and their struggles, because that is the uh, birthright that we all have of children of God. Both of these men were very human. Both were very powerful in their own circles and in their time. Both were very charismatic, clearly, by the lives that they, le they led and the records that have been left behind. Both men lived in a world where men had power over women. That does not make it right. I'm just saying that this is something that was very similar in the worlds of these men. Both of these men practiced polygamy and specifically polyandry. And it is my feeling that both seemed to have experiences being at profound internal war with themselves around issues of patriarchy, power, and sex. As I share this story with you, or my thoughts, um, my analysis of the prophet Joseph Smith and his inability to look at his shadow, it is my feeling that I don't believe that Joseph Smith was an evil man, but I do believe that Joseph Smith lost touch with his own humanity and his shadow did in fact take over. So let's just talk a little bit about what I believe were Joseph Smith's unique unresolved shadow parts. I definitely feel like Joseph Smith struggled with the ideas around power and authority. I believe that he struggled with um, power issues with both genders. And there was something in his shadow where he didn't quite know himself well enough to make sense of his profound need for affirmation and validation. I also believe that he had some unresolved shadow material around what, it, what women meant in his life. And that is closely linked. All of these are actually closely linked one to another. But I also believe that he had unresolved shadow content that was never looked at around sexuality. I want to make a couple of caveats as I really jump deeply into this, which is I believe that uh, that Joseph Smith in the 1830s, as, as is the case to this day, uh, we are all a product of a larger culture where these have always been an issue. In other words, patriarchy, power, and sexuality are fraught subjects and have been essentially since the beginning of time. I will say, however, that I think because of Joseph Smith's legacy, 
these are struggles that um, are, are somewhat idiosyncratic and unique in our church tradition because of his unique and idiosyncratic struggles with these issues and how they played out in the uh, restoration of, uh, of, Joseph, of Joseph Smith's um, Joseph Smith's restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and his interactions um, in the, this historical time period. Something else I want to throw out there just for us to sort of think about as we sort of scaffold or I create a structure around the conversation I'm about ready to have with you guys is that once again, when someone has a large amount of influence, they can create large problems and um, it can become a small snowball that turns into a giant snowball. If we have a small sphere of influence and we have shadow struggles that we don't overcome, we create small problems. But if someone has a large sphere of influence and they don't look at their shadow material, it can become a large problem, even a problem that is close to a disastrous problem. So let's just talk a little bit about the tactics used when we're running from our shadows and specifically the tactics used when Joseph Smith decided to enter into the practice of plural wives and how he was able, because he didn't make sense of his own underdeveloped shadow struggles with women, with power, with patriarchy, with sex, he didn't make sense of these things. And so he moved into a behavior that I believe is a product of not looking at his own shadow. Let's just look at the tactics that happened as he was running from his own shadow. My belief is that he had an extreme commitment to this idea that I am a prophet. I personally believe that Joseph Smith had prophetic experiences at the beginning of his tenure as a prophet. I, I think that prophetic or divine interactions did in fact happen. And so he really self-identified as a prophet. And so he really um, held on to what it means to be a prophet. I'm just going to speculate how he may have wanted to be seen. Perhaps as strong, holy, righteous, inspired, trustworthy, generous, selfless, and honorable. But because he was so committed to himself as a prophet and he lost touch with the, the reality that he was also a human, my belief is that these me states, strong, holy, righteous, inspired, trustworthy, generous, self, selfless, honorable, those are his me states. He lost touch of his humanity side, the human side, the male side, the weak side. And these not me states that he just absolutely seemed to struggle with even having any contact with, weak, unholy, wicked, uninspired, untrustworthy, selfish, and dishonorable, because he would not look at those and would not acknowledge those, when those things began to seep up through the floorboards of his life, he could not and would not look at them for what they really were. When we deny our shadow, it starts to take over and then we do all sorts of very, very creative things to make that which is not okay, okay, to fit it in the paradigm of our me self-state. So let's talk about how Joseph did that. Remember, um, I, there are several tactics that we use to run from our shadow. Tactic number one I mentioned before was an extreme overcommitment to our own self-image, to managing that image. Tactic number two is we enter into a lot of self-deception and other deception. I'm going to be pretty brief on these. There are many more that I could share, but I'm just going to uh, give you some, a, a few examples um, of, of self-deception and other deception. Of course, the deception that was experienced between himself and his own heroic wife, Emma. There was a lot of deceit there as he began to take on um, plural wives 
and, and many of which uh, she was not aware of. There is also uh, consistent public statements of denial that plural marriage was not being practiced when, it fact, when in fact it was. There was also a, a fairly common practice in the early church of doublespeak, meaning that um, there were certain ways of talking about plural marriage that made it okay if it was um, called one thing, it was, it was ordained of God. If it was called another thing, it was, it was adultery. I feel like these were ways that Joseph was um, deceiving himself and perpetuating uh, a climate of self and other deception in the early church by allowing this practice to become normalized. These all were accompanied by uh, a lot of self-justification that this was God's will. So let's move to the next uh, running from sh uh, the, the next tactic that we use and that Joseph used as he was running from his shadow. Tactic number three that I want to talk about is there was a lot of self-justification. I'm just going to go through again a few examples. Uh, the first example, which feels pretty important to me, is the self-justification that he used when he uh, was the way he looked at himself as uh, entitled to multiple wives because the, Bi the Bible prophets, the prophets of the, many of the prophets of the Old Testament practiced plurality and his justification was because they did it, so can I. I want to just read a little quote by the great American suffragette Elizabeth Cady Stanton when she talks about this idea that just because the prophets of old did it, somehow it's okay. And this is her, uh, she refutes this by saying this, Every infraction of the divine law of monogamy symbolized in the account of the creation of woman in the second chapter of Genesis brings its own punishment, whether, in, whether it is inside of or outside of the marriage relationship. Polygamy and concubinage wove the thread of disaster and complications throughout the lives of families, and its dire effects are directly traceable in the feuds and the degeneration of their descendants. The chief lessons taught by history is danger of violating physically, mentally, or spiritually the personal integrity of women. I could not agree more with what Caddy Stanton said here, which is that just because the prophets of old did this does not make it okay. And that was Joseph's uh, probably first justification for taking on extra wives. Joseph Smith justified himself and used the prophets to help him feel okay in falling in love with another woman. I want to read just a little section of, of, of the book, The Ghosts of Eternal Polygamy, written by Carolyn Pearson. In her really profound and detailed study of the practice of polygamy, she interviewed several people, one of whom was a, a man by the name of Marvin S. Hill, who at the time was a professor of English at BYU and the co-author of a book written with uh, none other than Dallin H. Oaks of the award-winning book called Car The Carthage Conspiracy. And in her interviewing of this man, uh, Marvin S. Hill, these are her own words. She says this, it was his belief that Hill felt that there was a period of time when Joseph was writing of a great anguish that he was going through. It can't be accounted for in anything that was going on at the time. Hill feels that he had fallen in love with Fanny Alger and didn't know what to do. Joseph then writes that he had found great peace. It was during this time that accounts have been, that accounts have it 
that he married Fanny Alger. Also during this time, Joseph is retranslating the Bible and being in the dilemma that he was, he found in the marital styles of the patriarchs an answer to his problem. So he put it through his mechanism for getting revelation and came out feeling a divine sanction. This, in my opinion, is a masterful practice of self-justification for a behavior that is not acceptable, in, at least in, in my eyes. Let's just talk a little bit more about Joseph's self-justification in the specific practice of polyandry, which um, many of you know what that is, but for those who don't, this is the practice of marrying a woman who is already married to another man. There are three specific self-justifications that were used at the time uh, these polyandry marriages, these polyandrous marriages took place. I'm just going to mention um, each of these come from Todd Compton's uh, study of Joseph Smith's plural wives in his book um, In Sacred Loneliness. There's one, uh, so the first one is this idea, which was actually um, not unique to the uh, restoration tradition, the LDS restoration. It was actually something that was going on um, elsewhere in the burnt over district of, uh, of the New England area, New York state where they were. And this is the idea that you may have gotten married for necessity, but there may be sort of an enchanted kindred spirit that was out there in the world. And if you found that person, and they had been, um, and you felt that they were someone you had loved before this life, that you were entitled to take them. As a matter of fact, we know that Joseph Smith used this justification because there is record that he said this to one of his plural wives. The, um, her name was Mary Elizabeth Leitner, his eighth plural wife. And we're just gonna quote a little piece from Compton's book where, he, where it says this. This is uh, Mary Elizabeth talking. She says, Joseph said that I was his before I came here. He said all the devils in hell should never get me from him. And then elsewhere she wrote that Smith told her that he had been commanded to marry her or quote, suffer condemnation for I, Mary, was created for him from before the foundation of the world. So as you can see, there was some self-justification there that somehow he was entitled to her from before the world was and therefore he could take her, which is fraught with all sorts of um, issues in, on multiple levels. Second justification that he used for polyandry was there was a belief um, right as the restoration was taking place that a higher priesthood trumps a lower priesthood in the taking of wives. So if someone with a higher priesthood uh, wanted another woman of, uh, of, a, of someone with a lower priesthood, that was acceptable. I was astounded in my study of uh, Joseph's polyandrous wives that most of them were actually the wives of his own friends and loyal companions in the restoration. So the belief is that most of them, it's very likely, were complicit. They agreed to this. It's also uh, Compton also um, speculates that many of these men did not know what they were signing up for. Um, in these ceilings or plural marriages, it probably did not occur to them that these would be sexual in nature. But as, of course, things um, unfolded, uh, they learned otherwise, at least in many cases. All right, a third justification for, for polyandry is that there was a belief taught, that Joseph Smith taught, that 
any marriages that were not performed under the authority restored to Joseph Smith himself were not marriages at all. They did not count. So if they were performed by any other church or civilly, they were not marriages anyways. And so therefore, uh, those with the authority under Joseph Smith could have and could marry as they desired because they were not competing with a, a, a viable authority anyways. As you can see, once again, when we lose track of our shadows, we really engage in a lot of creative internal psychological um, shenanigans to justify our own bad behavior and make that which is wrong somehow become right. We fit it into the paradigm of the me self by a lot of justification and self-deception. When we earnestly come to believe that our own elaborate self-deception is real, basically uh, the trickle-down effect becomes devastating and we begin to really hurt others because we think we are above the law. As we self-justify, as we lose contact with our shadows more and more, and we believe ourselves so above reproach that we don't have a shadow part, that, that we couldn't possibly be, be conniving, be manipulative, be completely self-deceived. As we completely distance ourselves from those things, our grandiosity becomes greater and greater. Let's just talk a little bit about Joseph Smith's um, struggles with grandiosity as he further estranges himself from his own humanity. Uh, just a couple of, again, brief points. The feeling that somehow he was personally um, infallible. I will talk a little bit later about how uh, he did begin to look this possibility, look look at this differently um, right before the martyrdom, but it was too late. Other parts of grandiosity that were evidenced in Joseph Smith's life in this period, as things um, unraveled for him, was this sense of his entitlement to follow an entirely different set of rules, um, not only from the culture at large, but even from those in his own. Um, his own religion. There was sort of an in-crowd and there was a, a dynastic sense of being connected to him and a power structure inside of even the church itself. It's a grandiosity, a placing of people above other people and them having different rules. And then of course uh, another um, element of this grandiosity was just his general treatment of the women that um, he coerced into these plural marriages. Um, they, they demonstrate uh, great blunted judgment, his blunted ability to discern the pain and the agony that they must have been in, um, the cognitive dissonance that they were probably experiencing in having this deep and profound trust and faith in a lot of the early restoration principles while feeling probably to their core that this could not be right, and yet blunting those feelings um, in, the, in the face of trying to be loyal to who they believed was a prophet and how painful that must have been for these people involved. All right, let's move on to how he scapegoated. This is yet again another tactic that we use when we are in active denial of our own shadow, when we're running away from our own humanity. We scapegoat other people. So let's look and see how Joseph did this. I'm really intrigued with uh, the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and Joseph's um, his own, the ways that he looks at not only the, the founding patriarchs, those um, early poly polygamists that gave him the sort of permission to practice polygamy and polyandry himself, but I'm also extremely intrigued with the way he interacts with King David in the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants. He's very hard on David. I've never liked um, 
set for years and years and years, long before I was even interested in this topic at all or interested in um, all of the things that I'm interested in sharing with you on the podcast, I've never, I've never accepted what was said in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 132, verse 39, among other things that I didn't accept, but this particularly really, this bothered me, where, where Joseph really is hard on David and basically says that David has fallen from his exaltation because David took to wife Bathsheba and killed her husband, he has lost his exaltation. I see that as a scapegoating tactic where in four different places in the 132nd section, Joseph basically says, as long as you don't kill a man, you can practice polygamy. What I hear in that, once again, in his own um, woundedness, his own self-deception, his own self-justification is, I didn't kill anyone, therefore it's okay. He was throwing David under the bus because he was not like David. David was different. He was better than David. David had killed a man. And he was really tough on David, I think, because Joseph struggled so much with the acknowledgement of his own shadow self. And of course, the very last tactic for running from our shadow is hostility and judgment. Joseph was known to be very, very hostile to those who rejected his, um, um, his what do I want to say, <laughs> who rejected um, his, his invitations to practice um, a plural marriage, polygamy, polyandry. Um, he was known to um, really defame some of the women uh, when things did not go well. I also find uh, it very hostile that he threatened his own wife, Emma, with eternal destruction if she would not support the practice of polygamy. And of course, um, the final act of hostility right before Joseph's death was um, the destruction of the expositor um, that was in part uh, intended to expose Joseph's um, practice of, of polygamy, which of course um, led to his death. This is something I want to paraphrase from a great thinker by the name of Scott Peck. And it talks a little bit about this very, very complex interaction that we have with ourselves when we're in denial of our shadow. He says this, Now we come to a sort of paradox. People hiding from the shadow feel themselves to be guiltless, but at the same time, they have an unacknowledged sense of their own self-deception. It is a sense from which they are frantically trying to flee. The essential component of this experience is not the absence of a sense of sin or imperfection, but the unwillingness to tolerate that sense. The self-deceived are aware of their evil and desperately trying to avoid the awareness, continually engaged in sweeping the evidence of their evil under the rug of their own consciousness. I feel like that is exactly what we are witnessing in the sad end of Joseph Smith's life as he continued to avoid his shadow. The question I want to move to now is, was there perhaps a Nathan figure, someone who confronted Joseph and invited him to look at himself that may have actually prevented Joseph to spinning um, to, to his life and um, the beginnings of the church spinning out the way it did and ending up in Joseph Smith's um, death? I'm going to just throw out an idea that I believe there's a possibility, at least, looking at the history, that, that none other than Oliver Cowdery may have tried to be Joseph's Nathan figure. I'm going to just reference for a moment from Todd Compton's In Sacred Loneliness. I'm going to just talk a little bit about a string of events that happened um, beginning in 1835. 
which is just about, which is around the time when um, it is believed that Joseph Smith propositioned Fanny Alger. There was a fierce argument between Emma and Joseph and Oliver was called in to mediate. This is 1835. At that point in time, Fanny was expelled from the Smith home. Joseph thereafter left for a few days with Frederick Williams, during which time Oliver stepped up to the plate in defense of Joseph and wrote and published something called the Articles on Marriage, denying polygamy, which was presented and accepted by the church in Smith's absence. It appears at this point in time that, that Oliver was trying to protect Joseph's reputation from the church and perhaps try to help Joseph come to his senses about his um, affection for Fanny Alger and help him um, move out of what was beginning to happen in Joseph and his relationship with Fanny. But it appears that it did not go well. It seems as if um, around this period of time, uh, Joseph and Oliver's relationship begins to deteriorate. And uh, there is record that later on, a couple of things happened. Um, uh, Oliver Cowdery was eventually excommunicated and Oliver never denied that what he saw and what he witnessed and what he experienced regarding Joseph and Fanny, he never denied its inappropriateness and that he saw what he saw and that he could not accept it as okay. He never ever was able to, un, um, to, to justify Joseph's behavior that began with his first plural wife, Fanny Alger. At his excommunication in 1838, there is a quote, Oliver, um, oh, this is from uh, In Sacred Loneliness also, and I'll just a quote here where he says, Cowdery criticized the church for endeavoring to make it a rule of faith for the church to uphold a certain man or men, whether right or wrong. Basically, in this place, Cowdery was saying we, don't, we should not be justifying bad behavior, even if it comes from the life of a prophet or someone who we have revered as a prophet. There is a little bit of evidence that Joseph uh, approached some sort of self-confrontation at the very, very end of his life. But unfortunately, as we all know, by this time it was too late. This quote comes from President uh, William Marks, the state president of the Nauvoo stake, right before the uh, martyrdom of Prophet Joseph Smith. He says this, when the doctrine of polygamy was introduced to the church as a principle of exaltation, I took a decided stand against it, which stand rendered me quite unpopular with many of the leading ones of the church. Joseph, however, became convinced before his death that he had done wrong. For about three weeks before his death, I met him one morning in the street. And he said to me, Brother Marx, we are a ruined people. I said to him, how so? He said the doctrine of polygamy or the spiritual wife system that has been taught and practiced among us will prove our destruction and overthrow. I have been deceived. Now, as an aside, I wish he had said in a little bit more accountable way, I wish he had said, I deceived myself. But instead, he said, I have been deceived in reference to its practice. It is wrong. It is a curse to mankind, and we shall have to leave the United States soon unless it can be put down and its practice stopped in the church. So as we see, unfortunately, Joseph may have begun to come to himself, but it was actually too late. He was martyred just a few weeks later. M. Scott Peck, an expert in the shadow, says this, The central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. So let's just spend a few minutes talking about 
how we suffer because of Joseph Smith's unresolved shadow. We have an institutional legacy that I believe we fight with and have to contend with constantly. Let's talk about, I kind of, if you had a visual, if you were in front of me at the Sunstone Symposium with the slideshow, I have a triangle here and on each point of the triangle, I have uh, one of three characteristics of the unresolved shadow that we as an institution suffer with and struggle from. These three points are hard power, patriarchy, and sexuality. And as you may um, have already discerned as you listen to these three, they are all closely intertwined. While I, also, while I think that Joseph's legacy includes some very beautiful truths and eternal doctrines that did come from the beginning of the Restoration Movement, I also believe that we carry an institutional collective shadow. And once again, I want to make clear that I do know that while the world at large and pretty much all organized religion struggles with issues of hard power, patriarchy, and struggles with sexuality, I believe that we have an idiosyncratic, more complex shadow because of the legacy of Joseph Smith's unresolved shadow. Let me just break these down briefly. Let's talk for a moment about hard power. Uh, hard power is different than soft power, right? Hard power is the product of pressuring someone, getting power through pressure, guilt, um, threats of eternal consequences, and fear tactics. My belief is that power in and of itself is not evil. It is a neutral thing. Power is the exchange of energy because there's also on the flip side of hard power, there's something that I'd like to call soft power, which means that one has the profound ability to influence others with soft power when their influence is based on love, equality, relationality, and the free will of all parties involved. Our church really struggles with exercising hard power, which I believe is the legacy of the Restoration and Joseph Smith's polygamy. I believe that we struggle with uh, power over um, in the church. I think there are, are struggle, institutional struggles where cert a small body really exercises a lot of hard power over both men and women. And there's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of interaction. Um, but I also, and I, and I should say, I also believe that we struggle with this early idea of, um, I want to talk for just a second about the word dominion. This is also used in the Doctrine and Covenants. Dominion, by definition, means dominating over. There's a, there's a phrase in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants that refers to the idea of unrighteous dominion. It is my feeling that all dominion, all dominating behavior is unrighteous. In human relationship, we do not dominate over anyone. Any dominion over is unrighteous dominion. And we struggle with that in the church. We, there, are, there is a, an idea or a philosophy, a culture of dominion over rather than collaboration with. This in part is why as a church, from an institutional perspective, I believe that we struggle with being accountable. We struggle with saying we're sorry. We struggle with, with historical um, accidents. We, we struggle with uh, turning historical accidents into doctrine. We, we struggle because there's this idea that we have to maintain our position of power. The tragedy there is there's nothing more beautiful and endearing than the soft power of personal and institutional accountability. 
we can choose power over as an institution or we can choose relationship with. We have come to find out the very hard way that we cannot have both. So let's move over specifically to this idea of, of patriarchy, which is basically, I was broadening set, the last concept was power over. Now I'm gonna kind of uh, be a little more specific, which is power, men, male power over females. So men having power over women. This is, is my opinion, is at the heart of our struggles um, as an institution. Once again, we have choices to make. We can be patriarchal over, or we can be collaborative and relational with. Men can have power over women, or they can be collaborative with women, in which case we can have a church that truly can grow and flourish because both genders are invited into the conversation of personal and institutional growth and evolution. As long as women are considered less than or one down, and as long as the ghosts of polygamy are not healed, the church is going to continue to suffer from unresolved and present trauma in its women and by extension in its families and in the children. I also believe that there are microaggressions that are perpetuated each and every Sunday in church as long as we live in a patriarchal system in our, in our religious institution. Women are subjected to to microaggressions, which is just small but significant wounds to their own sense of worthiness and value, as long as they are under the power of an entire gender. I also believe that um, as long as we have any kind of a theology where women are um, considered a, an eternal reward for men, we are in an institution that is not going to bring about the evolution, um, the full evolution of women or men. It's, it's a doctrine and a philosophy that is fraught um, with problems. It destroys identity. It, it destroys people. It wounds. It hurts. It is not the gospel and doctrine of Jesus Christ. And finally, under the idea of our um, institutional shadow is the, the problems that we have that patriarchy brings a silencing of a feminine divine. As long as our Heavenly Mother is silenced and um, her voice is not heard, that is a further expression of, of how we at the church at large experiences womanhood, um, even in silencing the divinity, divine womanhood. And women notice this, they feel it, they suffer from it. And they feel some degree of, I think, um, justified righteous indignation about this. Let's talk about the third point of the triangle. We had started with um, hard power that I just recently talked about patriarchy. And now I'm going to move over to our fraught relationship with sexuality. And I know this is a big one. Um, Christianity and actually all of the big religions struggle with uh, having a, a healthy understanding of sexuality. We are no exception. But again, I believe that we have special complex, especially and especially complex relationship with sexuality because of Joseph Smith's shadow uh, and because of the, the polygamy. Okay, so let's just talk a second about this. I believe that, um, well, let me just put on my trauma therapist hat for a brief moment. When someone is the product of generational trauma, what they oftentimes do is they inadvertently either model the behavior of the perpetrator or they react against the behavior of the perpetrator. So in this frame, if we look at institutional trauma um, that ha we have experienced as an institution, we have actually done both. After the murder of the Prophet Joseph Smith, um, out of loyalty 
and really, really trying to trust that polygamy was uh, righteous and buying into um, this, the unresolved shadow of Joseph Smith. Um, our church spent a lot of time, about 80 years, trying, well, there was the manifesto, but then if you extend that several decades to the actual end of polygamy, um, we were well into the, um, the, the, 19th, um, the 1900s before we actually stopped it. So we tried as children, um, as an institution um, surviving trauma, we tried to actually model the behavior and um, somehow um, live in the cognitive dissonance of making that which was um, psychologically, spiritually, ethically, and morally um, just devastating to um, so many people. We tried to make it right. Then we flipped and we moved into the reaction stance, which is where we stand now. Interestingly, although Joseph's polygamy was an extraordinarily sexually liberal stance for Victorian America, in the 1830s and 40s. Um, we have now since, um, here um, in the you know, 2020s, we are now one of the most sexually conservative religions as I think a reaction against polygamy because we carry this institutional shadow. We have really struggled with um, ultra conservatism in the church. And I think this is probably one of the reasons amongst others, why our um, fraught stance in the LGBTQ plus movement is what it is, is that we struggle with, we hold this very, very sexually conservative stance, I believe is a reaction to polygamy. There is a belief that began with polygamy that we have a conceptualization of the eternities, of what this will look like in the, in the hereafter, which of course includes women being uh, an eternal reward for the most righteous of men. While we acknowledge that we can't exactly make sense of that, and while women um, grieve that on the regular at the Latter-day Saint tradition, somehow the, the institution feels pretty solid in their beliefs that there is no place or room for um, gender and sexual minorities. I believe that we don't know what the next life will look like. I believe that we do know that it is not the garnering of women as a reward for men. And I believe that science is proving to us that we know very, very little about gender and sexuality, not only in this life, but certainly not in the next life. And that is where our theology is really, really fraught. And it's causing a lot of harm. It's causing the hemorrhage of the church because we're struggling with this sexual issue that many churches struggled with, but we are lagging behind because I believe that we are really in struggle with admitting how much we don't know about the nature of, of the eternal family in the next life. Okay, let's move on to a close. How do we, those of us who are trying to stay faithful and, and be in a congruent relationship with the church, but also with our own spiritual development, being committed to truth over loyalty, how do we deal with this? It is my belief that we have to look truth in the face. We have to understand with compassion that Joseph Smith got lost, that he did not understand his own shadow self. And that spun out of control and it has caused a lot of struggles with sexuality, with power, and with patriarchy, and that we still deal with these today. I wanna to just close with a couple of quotes on how we can practice value-driven insubordination meaning that we can stand up and say with courage that we are honoring our covenants and we are valuing our relationship with our parents in heaven and our powers of discernment, the gifts of the Holy Ghost that we have, to speak up and say that we are not going to just stand by and allow this shadow to continue to have the force and the power that it's had up until this point in our institution, in our families, in our lives. 
I'm going to quote a couple of scholars on how we can do this. A man by the name of Schmucker says this, what we cannot face will catch us from behind when we gain the true strength to acknowledge our imperfection, our imperfect moral condition, we are no longer possessed by demons. We, those of us who are interested in this kind of topic, and if you're listening to this podcast, I have a hunch that you are one of them. You are trying to navigate an extraordinarily complex history and where you stand in the history right now. And we have to be the ones that have the courage to stand up and to talk about the struggles that our church is struggling from. Not only from the shadow of the prophet Joseph Smith and polygamy, but the other struggles that we are really working through, many of which I do believe are, are the products of, um, the early, of the the beginnings of the church and the struggle with polygamy. Another quote here. Listen to this one because this is phenomenal. This one's a really good one. The only safe nations or collectives of any kind are those who systematically inoculate themselves by a free press and by a vocal prophetic minority against the intoxication of divine destinies and sanctified paranoia. I'm going to read that again because it matters. The only safe nations or collectives of any kind are those who systematically inoculate themselves by a free press and a vocal prophetic minority. You guys, that is us. We need to be a vocal prophetic minority. We need to be courageous and respectful about inoculating our collective, the church, from its own blindness. And that's what this presentation is trying to do and trying to help you guys do with me. Uh, uh, my final quote is this, which I love. This is by someone by the name of Stein, uh, David Stein, Steinel Rast. He says this, when you are through with your tradition, it must be different from where you found it or else you have failed. It is your responsibility to make your religious tradition, whatever it may be, Christian or otherwise, more truly religious by the time you are through with it. That is the great challenge we face. And so the challenge that we face, um, each of you who are listening to this, is we have the challenge to look truth in the face, to acknowledge the struggles of our founding prophet, to acknowledge the legacy that we, that we still carry, and to do our best um, to manage the intense, the tension that we have to hold with the truth and the legacy and the beauty that we enjoy that keeps us there with the truths, the struggles, um, the unresolved shadow that we, are still, um, that we are still working our way through even to this day. So if you liked this this podcast, yes, it was a podcast, but it was also um, this is a little bit has a little bit different flavor than um, some of my podcasts where it's a little bit more of a, an interaction or a dialogue. Um, like I said before, this was a formal presentation that has taken me many many months in the preparation. Um, probably I don't even know how many hours, but um, I'm so grateful that I got to give it there, and I'm really grateful that I get to give it here. Um, my first Sunstone Symposium was uh, the presentation has been um, shared like crazy um, on this podcast. And it's really my hope that as you have heard this and taken it in yourself, um, that you share this far and wide. Um, if this feels like something that you want to um, other people to at least think about. Like I said, I um, don't pretend to be the expert and know everything. I don't know everything, but I, I do feel 
that I have been given the gift of at least having enough courage to put these thoughts out there so that we as an institution can become healed. That is my hope. And the, the best way we can become healed is by raising our awareness of what it is that we're confronted with, what it is that we're involved in, why we struggle, how we got here, how it began, and how we can overcome. And it is that vocal prophetic minority, it's those of us who are willing to share or speak up or do both, how is, is these are the ways that we as a church um, can heal from our wounds. So share this far and wide. If you feel so inclined, I always deeply appreciate um, those of you who jump on iTunes and write a positive review and rate this podcast. And as usual, please subscribe and I hope to see you soon.